Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome back to another episode of EAA's The Green Dot, a podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. Uh, Today, uh, I'm going to kind of lead in as your host. I'm Chris Henry, the museum program's representative. Across the table for me is another co-host. Yeah, I'm Connor Madison. I'm the staff photographer here and resident airplane nerd. Awesome. And uh, welcome to to being on here with me. He kind of slid in the cougar spot here this uh, morning, (laughs) so no worries. Uh, But we are really going to have an exciting guest and someone who uh, I – the stories have to just be endless. I can't wait to to talk to him. So let's go ahead and bring him on. We're actually on with Wally Saplata. Uh, Wally, thanks for coming on today. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Look forward to it. So before we start, Wally, you wrote a book, and we 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 want to make sure we plug the book because we 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 really want to get those stories out there of your adventures that you've you've been on. What's the name of the book? It's called the B twenty five in the backyard. And the subtitle is My Father's Historic Airplane Sanctuary. So I, I think that gives everybody a lead in. If you don't know the name Walter Saplata, uh, you, you you should by the end of this. Um, tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up uh, out in Ohio and, and, and just a little bit about your dad. Yeah, well, uh, I was born in 1953. And my dad was already doing airplane stuff even before then. So I, I literally grew up with airplanes. Uh I guess I'll go back to my very first vivid memory, which is probably good for everybody, was uh, probably about four years old when he put together the complete F-82E twin Mustang uh, right outside the house. I was up on the second floor is where we lived. So I was glued to the window for the entire weekend as he had his homemade boom tractor reassembling the XP-82. I'm sorry, the F-82E. And dad being a carpenter and a builder, he was rather quick. He assembled the entire airplane in one weekend as I stood there for hours and hours wearing on my legs as a four-year-old, five-year-old thereabouts. So, uh, I mean, just wow, you can imagine uh, seeing that go together. And then uh, he went back to his carpenter job Monday and mom and let me and my sisters climb on the airplane and slide down it. So anyways, that's, that's <laughs> the, the big opening in my memory of the first, wow, a big event. Uh, so your dad was, your dad was really out there saving airplanes that otherwise would not have been saved. Yeah, it's very much true. Uh, we can't say in every case, but we believe in almost every case that the planes he got would have been cut up for scrap, which is just a dominant mode of operation for, at that time. Uh, it, it, one in particular case, uh, we were hauling B-25 wild cargo and working on it at Cincinnati's Lunkin Airport. And it had been vandalized, as most of those airplanes were. But the weird thing we spotted was the... Uh, panel below the main fuel tank was missing on the right wing and somebody had cut the rubber bladder with open. We thought, why would you take that panel off to vandalize the airplane and just, you know, and then uh, we found out some some visitors who'd been there said, oh, you guys got here just in time. There was a junkyard crew slashing the gas tanks. They were about to torch the airplane with cutting torches and scrap it. When the the airport manager ran out and said, no, no, stop, stop. We've uh, got this guy just bought the airplane. So that B-25 literally came within maybe 30 minutes to an hour of, of being cut up and scrapped. So that was really personal to us that we had, had gotten that close to losing that one airplane. Well, and what's incredible is that B-25 today is flying still as the name Wild Cargo uh, down at the Virginia, Virginia Beach, uh, the Military Aviation Museum. Um, 
have you have you seen that airplane since uh, it's been restored? No, I have not seen it. I bad on me. Uh, I've met Jerry Egan. He came to the property about ten years ago to look things over. With a wonderful visit with Jerry at that time, but but no, I've not been to see the airplane. And uh, Wally, how did how did your dad get into saving airplanes in the first place? Well, I think it's that's a good question. I, he was nuts about airplanes. In fact, this story you know, it's kind of improbable because here's a guy not educated. He's got no money. Uh, he's got some other issues, but, but, uh, he just loved airplanes and it goes, it goes to show the power of, uh, you love something like aviation. You can overcome a lot of things, but he built a lot of model airplanes as a kid, uh, mostly the balsa wood ones, uh, had photos of some pretty big ones he made and they all flew, uh, among the hardships in his life, besides the great depression coming on as a kid and his uh, father abandoning his family, a house fire burned all his model airplanes down. And yet, so he just changed to getting real airplanes, uh, I guess you could say. Uh, he wanted, of course, to be in World War II. He was the perfect age to be a World War II pilot. But dad stuttered. And at that time, it, it totally disqualified him from serving the military, which is kind of a monkey on his back. He really wanted to do that and go off and be a pilot. But they said, no way. So he worked at an aircraft factory making fuel pumps during the war. And then when the war ended, he had to find another job because that, that came to a stop. And he uh, worked at a scrapyard where they were scrapping brand new Warbird engines. I mean, you would just dock a brand new Allison's and Pratt R2800s coming out of a crate brand, brand new being cut up for scrap. And occasionally an airframe would go through that scrapyard. And that's when he kind of got the idea. I need to try and get my hand in some of this. Well, can you tell me, uh, so the twin Mustang, the, the E-twin Mustang was the first one that uh, you can remember. Um, is there one that stands out for you as, uh, as sort of the most special or the, the holy grail of, of the hauls that, uh, that y'all did? Because uh, I wasn't with him when he got the, the Cutlass jet home in the school bus. That's quite an <laughs> epic story. If people haven't heard that before, maybe we'll get to that. But he, uh, as an observer, uh, yeah, he went to get this fighter plane. They bid $200 on this jet in Boston at a Naval Air Station. And we didn't have much money, so he had said old school bus. He used to haul a big jet home. There's photos of that in the book, but but I wasn't involved in that. I was a little too young. Uh, for me, uh, hauling wild cargo was really special. Uh, we yet got another B-25 a couple years later that was in much better shape. Uh, wild cargo had, la- had had a gear up landing. And been vandalized. It was it was in okay shape, but the one we got, the second B twenty five, was almost uh, airworthy. Uh, in fact, the owner that sold it offered to ferry it for my dad. So I was really excited about that airplane. It's such great shape, and you know it's a stock twenty five. It's not like the Super Corsair or something like the Twin Mustang. It was in such mint condition that uh, I got more cockpit time in that second B twenty five than any other airplane. <laughs> but the- so we we've got to ask about. The, the the jet and the bus because that is uh that's an image that if anybody sees the book or even goes online to look at that uh uh tell us a little bit about getting a an f7u cutlass home in a school bus yeah so dad he uh this is a, also winter he's unemployed dad's a carpenter they, they tended to be unemployed during the winter months because of the heavy snow in that part of ohio uh later he, they went full-time about a couple years later but anyway he'd be later off so money was really tight and he bids this thing in the winter and he actually bought the school bus as a hope to go west to the boneyards of Arizona, where they still were scrapping some uh, sort of later planes like Bearcats and stuff. Uh, 
And uh, World War II stuff was pretty much gone by then. But anyways, he just didn't have the money to go there. But he had the school bus. It was a junker. And he actually used it to haul some other stuff, uh, loads and loads of B-25 parts. When the, there was a big depot at Columbus, Ohio, that surplused all the B-25 parts when they were parked. And I remember those coming home. So the bus had kind of been used as a truck. So he goes to Boston. And I wasn't sure what he was going to do, but he gets there. He's got, he also got a trailer behind the school bus. And the Navy guys there think, well, it's going to be his camper, apparently. He's going to camp in this thing while he disassembles the jet. And they're expecting his, you know, big scrapyard crew with a big 18-wheeler flatbed truck to show up. When they finally figure out that this is this is it, uh, the, the civil service people called in the Navy brass, and, you know, base commander, all those kind of guys. And uh, Dad was afraid. Honestly, he was thought he'd get not, uh, locked away for, come, for this crazy scheme of, you're going to do what? You're going to put that fuselage in that school bus. Uh, and a, a moment that kind of saved his bacon, he was proud to carry around his airplane scrapbook with photographs. And when he showed the guys, a number of them were pilots, that he had several Corsairs, the twin Mustangs, and other airplanes. That he really was serious. And he was a guy that had you know, been saving airplanes. So he kind of got him. So they gave him the approval to go ahead and uh, try this and see how it goes. Wow. Wow. It's crazy. <laughs> so, and he basically like shed parts of the roof and the sides of the school bus. To load this cutlass. Right, yeah. And <laughs> Do it. He was a scrap man. Dad was a number of things, but a scrap man was deeply part of his roots. So a cutting torch was never far away. Uh, he actually had cut the rear doors. Some of the there's some very exotic engines he ended up getting. They came in that same school bus. He had used the, the torch to cut part of the bus open to make the door wider. And then, uh, yeah, he, so it wasn't really unusual for him to think of opening up the back of the bus, but for the cutlass, he cut the back wall completely off the bus, had to cut a seam in the roof of the bus. And then being it's from Ohio, as y'all in Wisconsin, we know you get salty roads and things get rusty. When they shoved it in, the, the rust and corrosion had weakened the right wall of the bus. And it peeled open like a ripe banana. And uh, the Navy guys therefore named it the banana bus, which is the, the title of one of my chapters about that. Uh so they got the school, the, the jet inside, but, you know, it's it's a big jet. It's long the, the, where the uh, radar dome would go was right up against the dashboard. I mean, I actually climbed in there while the thing was still in the school bus. And uh, it was crazy. Dad had the, it's a school bus. So there's no door on the left side. He would have to uh, spread eagle, work his way over the fuselage, between the gap between the top of the fuselage and the uh, ceiling of the bus. There was the only way to get out was to basically crawl over the fuselage to get to the, the standard school bus door on the right-hand side. So uh, it was 600 miles home, uh, but he made it somehow. He drove about 40 hours nonstop, and uh, it was just the whole, thing's, the whole thing's crazy. But uh, he got arrested by the cops a whole bunch of times and stuff like that. <laughs> but they didn't know what they didn't know what the heck to do with him, so they let him go. And so anyway, so this is the craziest story there is. Uh, and thank God I got some photos to show it's real. Well, and that F7U is, uh, it's actually at the MAPS Air Museum in Akron uh, now. Um, yes, yeah, so we're real happy for it to go there. They have restored some other aircraft, but there was an F-84F uh, that Dad donated to them. He got from the Ohio Garden. They did a beautiful job restoring that. And all our early Sikorsky helicopters also there and some other items. So uh, we're glad to have it have a good home. And, and we felt it kind of belongs in Ohio. It's, uh, it's kind of close to where Dad saved it, so. We're happy with the going to the Maps Museum. 
I walked in there. I didn't know it was there. And when I got there for a visit, uh, I was really geeked out because I knew right away there's only a few F7Us in the world. Uh, and I knew right away where that one came from. Uh, that was That's so cool that it's there. Um, and again, another one that would have gone away. I mean, uh, even statistically, there's only a few cutlasses left out there. Right. Um, so I, that one probably has multiplied the surviving number of cutlasses by four <laughs> you know, or something. So... Um, there are very many. Yeah, it's got a unique, it's got a unique role in aviation history. I mean, it's kind of a you know bridging the gap of prop fighters to jet fighters. One of the very first early jet fighters, the first uh, fighter to use afterburners, the first plane to have a three thousand psi hydraulic system. A number of innovations to get the colors to go, but sadly, it was a dangerous airplane. It kind of represents the sacrifice of some of our people. We lost twenty five pilots in cutlass crashes. Uh, when you bring a new fighter plane online back in the 50s, it was com- not uncommon that at least one test pilot was going to die bringing that airplane online. The Cutlass claimed four test pilots. It was that the challenging of an airplane. So uh, it, and that's what it means to me. It speaks to the sacrifice of the early pioneers of the jet age that uh, went out and did some you know, very cutting edge flying and, and a lot of them lost their lives as part of their uh, you know, commitment to our nation, to our service. Yeah, that's a, I, I think that's a really good point and just something, you know, it's so rare. It's it, it's pretty special for people to be able to see that, you know, in person and just, you know, you're, I, I find at least for myself, I'm able to relate to, to a story of an aircraft more, especially when you can see it in person like that. Uh, so I have burning questions. One of my favorite airplanes and of all time. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Just a, a tip, you know, one, one astronaut who trained in that airplane was Wally Schrar. He trained other guys to fly the Cutlass. We don't have the, the records of who flew what, but it, it'd be really cool if somewhere in the archives they could find out that Wally Schrar had, had flown that that very jet at some point. So maybe not, but it could be nice. That's uh, super cool. So I have to ask about the B-36. I mean, it's one of my all-time favorites. How, how did your mm-hmm. dad manage to get that to the yard? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh <laughs> Well, I had just enlisted in the Air Force uh, before we got that. And we had hauled home a, uh, another story in the book, a, a KC-97 tanker, which I hauled most of that at age 18, right out of high school. Dad had a very busy summer at the carpenter job, and they said, you can't get much time off this summer. We're building houses seven, six, seven days a week. So he had me do that for him. But, but the, there was a link there. Uh, a guy named Ralph Huffman had got the KC-97 from Southridge Air Force Base. And... Uh, the first time guy, they got to know Ralph Huffman, uh, and kind of polar opposites. Ralph was a nice guy, but he talked to melting airplanes for a long time that he had personally melted fields and fields of Thunderbolts and Corsairs and Hellcats. Uh, he's one of those guys that did up. That was his job. Uh, but so he found uh, dad told, him, hey, find something else. Let me know. Well, Ralph Huffman uh, bid on and got to scrap B-36. So yeah, Walter, I got something else. And sure enough, he resold it to dad. Uh, <clears throat> had I had that, connect, that connection from the KC-97, I don't know if that would have happened. But uh, of course, it, it's huge. And uh, I was away as enlisted guy in the Air Force, later became an officer and pilot. So I was never involved with the B-36. But I got to tell you, uh, so I left in August of 72 for basic training came back for Christmas break in December 72, 50 years ago. And that short time I'd been gone, if I'd not known better, two 747s had collided on dad's property. I mean, they were just, just, you know, just 
chunks of airplane everywhere because uh, it, it was not when the Air Force got rid of it. I mean, they purposely destroyed that airplane. They use uh, which uh, bulldozers and cables and all kinds of things. I mean, they, they cut it and smashed it and really made a, a mess of the airplane. Uh, we're not sure why, but it was a very damaged, heavily damaged aircraft. Uh, but it tells a story about Dad. I mean, he, he was the kind of guy that if there was an orphan airplane that nobody wanted, he wanted it. I have other examples of that, such as there's a fire-damaged F-86 that is still on its gear, still mostly complete, but it was in the fire pit being used by the National Guard for, for firefighting practice. And uh, it's got that kind of damage. You know, Nobody else would want that, but but, but Dad did. So anyways, that uh, tells a big perspective of, of his dedication to any airplane, no matter what shape it was in, that uh, he would want to save it. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I was so I was pretty privileged to have heard uh, from Tom Riley kind of the whole story of recovering the XP eighty two, and I mean that's kind of tied to mm-hmm. the B thirty six. So I don't know, um, you know, like a lot of that story. If you want to tell that, or I can kind of chime in from what I know from there. But just you know, from him, he was after the from what I understand, he wanted the E model F eighty two, but that got sold, and so one day he's there doing an appraisal and is looking inside the P-36 and finds the XP-82 fuselage, if, if I have that right. Yes, yes, uh, exactly. And the, the F-82, the XP-82, uh, during my lifetime, I, I saw very little of the airplane. The story Dad told me, this differs with what's in the press, but the story Dad told me repeatedly was when he got the XP, uh, he wasn't sure how to disassemble it. It was, it was really his first first big airplane and with a torch he cut right through the center part of the center wing only to later discover that he could have unbolted the the both fuselages behind the cockpits and hold the center section with uh, both cockpits attached the engines off of course you always got to think how are you going to fit this thing on the highway you know and when he realized he destroyed the wing of the XP, then he, you know, money was tight. So to put food on the table, he scrapped much of the XP-82 and then later got the F-82E. But it, it, it was another moment for dad that he never used a torch again if he didn't, you know, or he makes sure to research an airplane really heavily before you dare reach for the torch and try to unbolt or cut rivets or do something, but not use a torch to, to separate it in a small enough, you know, piece to put on the highway. So, uh, but he did keep all the hardware, the main landing gear, tailwheels, a whole bunch of smaller parts. The left fuselage, obviously, had been stored in a shop for years, but eventually ended up in the B-36. Uh, and, then, uh, and I tell a story. It actually has to do with Oshkosh. I was at their venture in 2006 when they had the first scratch-built P-51A. Uh, Robert Odegaard built the wings, and Jerry Beck did the fuselage. And I knew from dad that all the drawings had been discovered for twin Mustangs as well as the P-51. And I wrote my dad, says, well, you know, the, the world of four twin Mustangs could grow to five. Uh, and uh, it'd be like rebuilding a plane from scratch in many cases. But that's what Tom ended up doing about a year later. Wow. How does that make you feel when you go, uh, you know, when you go somewhere and, and there's an airplane that, uh, you know, was on, on your farm, you know, stuffed in a B-36 or something like that. And then you see it today, you know, restored in some cases flying that, that, that has to make you feel good. And, and I, I guess appreciate, uh, that this is all part of your family's legacy. Right. Yeah. I got to see the, uh, uh, F2G 
the Corsair 74 with Robert Odegaard. Unfortunately, we know we later lost him in the aircraft, a big tragedy for all of us to have that happen. But I got to see it with Robert. Uh, and then uh, the XB-82, I actually got to work on that with Tom Riley uh, down at Douglas uh, almost four years ago. And uh, if you see pictures of the XP flying with no outboard gear doors, uh, those are pre-Wally photos. And you see it flying with the outboard. Tom, that was a hard, you wouldn't think so. It was hard to get the outboard landing gear doors out, but that was one project Tom and I worked on the XP. So I'm glad to have a tiny little hand in the, working on that and some other tasks he gave me. Uh, Tom's such a great guy, and y'all know what a perfectionist he is. Uh, I was a career Air Force pilot and an airline pilot. We always worry about taking line checks. Well, Tom had this list of tasks for me to do on the XP, and I felt like, oh my gosh, this is the line check of maintenance. You know, I got the, the world's best uh technician restoration guy in the world looking over my shoulder and, and he, uh, he, he he was a good judge he thought I did well so I, but I was a little nervous about uh, you know turning wrenches with Tom looking over my shoulder but he's a very sweet man and luckily I didn't flunk or anything <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome well so I have I have a story actually um, I met your dad once at uh, an air show and he knew a friend of mine um, it was an old Mohawk Airlines mechanic and Claire and him were talking, and I had, I had no idea who this gentleman was, and but he looked at me, and I was probably about 12 or 13 at the time, and he says, do you want to come and see my airplanes tomorrow? And I looked over at my friend Claire, and my friend Claire was nodding like, yeah, you do. And uh, I said, yeah, I, I would love that. Um, but before we left that day, he, at that time, he had a small building um, on the Youngstown, I think it was Youngstown, uh, was where we were, uh, Youngstown mm -hmm. Airport. And... He goes, well, well, come over here first, and I'll show you these. And and I'm thinking like, oh, maybe he has a, a a cool 170 or something like that. And and he opens up the door, and there's a twin Mustang and a TBM Avenger in there. And I'm like, oh my god. And he's like, yeah, you'll see the, you'll come see the rest of it tomorrow. And I actually got to go see the the farm. It was incredible. I mean, it was uh, uh, yeah, just something to be behold. And like you said, uh, um, this is he never met an airplane he didn't like. You know, he was just. He didn't. He didn't. He just wanted to save him from 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 going away. Yeah, that was yeah, it was definitely uh, yeah, exactly so. And uh, again, even to the point, something like you know, like the B thirty six. That you know, most folks with that uh, volume of smashed up airplane would have just you know salvaged the cockpit and maybe some other memory things that would be memorable, uh, memorable like a one of the pusher engines. But he he got the whole thing. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He wanted it all. So. Uh, that definitely was he's very thorough about that wow now and and i don't remember did you guys have did you guys have race 57 too the super course there or was that somewhere else no uh, good question no uh no we did not however it was just 10 miles away uh radiators is a vr called Chardon in northeast ohio it's right next to the chart the vr itself just maybe 100 yards and it was also one of the air races from cleveland and it made us appreciate something. I mean, you know, we didn't have hangers and stuff to take care of the planes, but dad put sheet metal on the, to cover the fabric wings of the Corsair. We did some painting with, you know, just cans of Rust-Oleum, uh, trying to put some, some tin sheds over the buildings. But this Corsair was, our planes were sometimes derelict. This thing was really derelict. I mean, it was really in terrible shape compared to our airplanes. Uh, and uh, all the fabric was gone. The wings were folded. And I use it as an example that people have doubted me for decades. Going, I tell that the old Corsairs, the original ones, 
had fabric on the outboard wings. People think I'm nuts because you know they fly fast. And in fact, they did. And that photo in my book of 57 shows that the, the fabric wings uh, folded up. Uh, but uh, anyway, and it went from there to some other restore. It went from one person to another, all trying to restore it later. Uh, and they just couldn't quite get there from here. But eventually Robert Odegaard got Robert Odegaard got that airplane and did restore it. Uh, for the, I think it was Connor said he was the air race guy. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Well, actually, so what we're kind of happy, so this is about 1964. Well, they started the Reno Air Races, and suddenly there was interest in getting those two Corsairs back flying because they had raced at Cleveland. Uh, in fact, I met a cook, a cook Cleveland who owned it, came to us, and he actually challenged my dad having the uh, bill of sale. Uh, cook was over in the Korean in Korea fighting the war there as a Corsair pilot when his wife sold the airplane to my father. But that all turned out in dad's favor. But there was talk of getting that Corsair back in the air for Reno. And uh, the, the name on the side of the plane uh, was that of Dick Becker. Uh, Dick Becker was a very great friend of ours. Visited a lot, almost like an uncle who's always on the property. And I remember dad approached Dick Becker about, uh, hey, uh, what if we get some sponsors and get the Corsair flying and race at Reno? Do you want to do that? And Becker said, just cranking the motor would give me a heart attack on that plane. It's such a beast. <laughs> so he said, no, Walter, don't, don't, don't let it fly again. And Becker, Becker declined entirely. He said, no, no interest in going to Reno. So another, uh, another air racer, I think your dad had owned at one point was Lucky Gallon, also a Corsair, but a, an FG1, an earlier one. Yes, yes. And there again, uh, uh, and uh, something bad happened to that airplane. That's this little story I was telling. How's this carpenter guy with no money get a whole bunch of warbirds? Well, uh, the story is that in many cases, something bad happened to those airplanes. Uh Lucky Gallon, or one day not so lucky Gallon, was sat at the Euclid Airport with the wings, uh, we you know, down for flight. But uh, it'd be careful when a Corsair with the wings down that if the hydraulic pins aren't in the bottom hinge, you know, that wing could flop up in a windstorm, which it did. And a big windstorm came off Lake Erie and got the wing flapping up and down where it hinges to fold and actually tore the wing off the airplane. You know, ripped the spar fittings out and all that did some other damage. So it was damaged badly in a windstorm and cook sold the plane to death for a hundred dollars. Uh, and so that's it. That's how he got it. And, uh, and that was common with most a lot of our aircraft. Uh, B-25 wild cargo had landed gear up. Uh, so therefore it was worth about $500, but in, in the XP-82 had uh, been damaged with NASA at Cleveland and they sold it for scrap. So that's kind of a theme of dad getting airplanes. Corsair 74 was not actually damaged, but it did blow its 4360 motor qualifying for 1949 air races. And there were no surplus engines like that to get. So it was hard down uh, when the engine went bad. So that's, so that's how I got Lucky Gallon. Uh, and uh, his airframe was damaged pretty bad. He, he scrapped some of that also uh, to put food on the table. You know, money was very tight. But like the XP82, he kept the landing gear, all the iron hardware. Uh, firewall forward and in the cockpit section all through up, up till where it bolts to the tail. And that was all that was remaining when I was a kid. So uh, I never saw the rest of it that, when it was assembled earlier. Wow. And that's one that uh, it's, it's currently under restoration of go fly again, right? 
I think, yeah, Penn Hawker has it. And I think he got a, he found a, a center wing, outboard wings. I mean, they all need to be reworked. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've seen photos of the shop it's at. Uh, I can't remember the name of the shop suddenly, but that's the expectation that it will fly again. Uh, a, a side note, it's in the book. Uh, we just learned this not too many years ago. Uh, Cook Cleveland loaned Lucky Gallon to a woman named Marge Hurlbert. And she used that airplane to break the speed record held by none other than Jackie Cochran. Jackie Cochran had a speed record up until then for women up to uh, 292 miles per hour. And uh, with Lucky Gallon, Marge up the record to 337 miles per hour in 1947. It's a little bit of women aviation topic there. Uh, of course, Jackie went on to fly supersonic and at one point even, uh, you know, over like 1,400 miles an hour in the F-104. So it, it doesn't matter. Jackie lost her record to Marge and Dad's Corsair or Cooklina's Corsair, but she would, again, set many more records after that. But but it does have that. Almost all of Dad's airplanes seem to have some niche of little chunk of history that you wouldn't think was there, but it was there. I, I mean, yeah, it's it's just truly amazing that, and he's just you know a guy that wanted to to save airplanes. And I kind of I I see a parallel. You know, we're we're pretty good friends with the the Hinton family with Planes of Fame. You know, with with Ed Maloney. I mm-hmm. mean, kind of like him and right. your dad. You know, are maybe two of the the Mount Rushmore of you know saving saving airplanes and no one else wanted to. That's a, a good yeah. Dad Dad knew Ed. I would say real well. They corresponded somewhat. Uh, like his. Uh, Ed's older son corresponded with my father a lot, uh, Jim Maloney, who, of course, you know, was lost, later lost in an air, airplane accident. Uh, uh, Jim and I were very close in age and corresponded a lot back and forth about the planes. Uh, and I, as a kid, seeing where, you know, where's Dad going to go with all this? It was an interesting contrast that, you know, Ed started almost like Dad. He towed some of his first airplanes behind the family car. Uh, but where he uh, came out better was he was able to you know, get people organized in a group to start fundraising, to you know, find places to put up a building, put up a museum, get restoration shops going and stuff like that. And, and my father never had that kind of team building uh, ability to, you know, he was a one man band and going to do it his way by himself. And that's unfortunately couldn't, couldn't get to that, that next level of what, uh, where Ed Maloney did such a wonderful job getting that operation going uh, way back then. Well, and you know, it, it's true that you know your dad uh, never got uh, his museum up, but uh, again, his legacy and his aircraft certainly do help support other museums. Uh, you can go around the country and see a lot of airplanes that are both flown and on display uh, that came right from your farm. I mean that uh, right. that's quite a legacy. <laughs> I mean, uh, you're talking about airplanes that wouldn't be here. Yeah, in fact, just uh, not that, but some components like there's it's an AT9 being rebuilt. Uh, we had. Not just one, but two firewall forward. You know, they were derelict and not in good shape, but but uh, some parts of an SP2, SP2C Hell Diver that was recently being worked on or restored, F6F Hellcat. Uh, he had a lot of bits of components, landing gear of this, you know, exhaust ring of that. Uh, it was some parts of a P38. So he had pieces of planes that he never owned the airframe, but uh, his stash of, of those kind of things have reached far and wide. Uh, when he got these, I would say truckloads, but school bus loads, like four school bus loads of brand new overhauled B-25 parts. Uh, a B-25 flying today probably at some point has had either exhaust stacks or over hatches that came from my dad's 
collection of parts that, uh, so yeah, his, and, uh, there was a time that nobody had an Orton bombsite, but my dad got a, found a stash of about 80 of those in, in Oklahoma. And so I'd say, dare say probably half the Norton bombsites you see on a Solomon bomber came from my father. So his reach went far beyond his own airframes to, you know, parts and, and again, bombsites and other stuff. Uh, he recognized people were not collecting the hardware or the, the ammunition kind of stuff with the guns and turrets because, uh, like when B-17s were used for forest firefighting, they stripped all this stuff out. And so not much of that survived. So he definitely got his uh, hands on a lot of unique parts and components that have gone out to countless warbirds. I seem to remember when I was in the uh, the garage in Youngstown that there was a wall just made out of manuals. Um, I, it, that, that's going back a ways, but I can just remember uh, stacks of manuals taller than me. Uh, for just various aircraft, uh, it, it was just incredible. I mean, I had never seen anything like it. Yeah, he, he collected. Yeah, he collected lots of manuals. Uh, and, oh, that's built my got some muscle work there done doing those things. But yeah, uh, <laughs> he would horse trade manuals with some other folks that had manuals, and he would buy a whole uh, load of uh, government bid and uh, from the Air Force, and, and we had manuals and manuals of F one hundred five Thunder Chiefs and KC ninety seven, you know, aircraft that were flying during that period of time. Uh, and it was just kind of fun to thumb through those. So he actually organized some of those and sold some manuals and gathered others. But he had quite a library of aircraft manuals, uh, and it kind of sparked my interest. I'll tell you one funny little story. So I'm thumbing, and the kids, thumbing through a flight manual for an F-105, and they use cartoons in the flight manual. There's a pilot with his parachute beside the road. He's, he's thumbing a car ride with his parachute, and the note is, extended use of afterburner, results in drastically reduced range. You know, so I got little airplane <laughs> cartoons in the flight manual for the F-105. So I was just thumbing through stuff like that as a kid. That's hilarious. I love it. <laughs> well, one of the airplanes uh, I seem to remember when we were walking around, you had a, there was a Neptune, I think, out there, or at least some variant of the Neptune. I, I seem to remember a, a, right. a, a portion of that. Do you recall that one? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the last plane we hauled together. And I, I didn't know how much of it. I was away at electronic school, but I helped him some with that. He bought it at Wilmington, Ohio, uh, which was uh, closing as an Air Force base. It had landed there, and they just had a hard landing, cracked the wing spar. And uh, for $800, dead bid on that, government surplus. It had a thousand gallons of, of 115, 145 octane gas, avgas on board. And he's, the gas was worth, worth more than the airplane. But anyways, uh, I really couldn't see why he wanted that. It wasn't per se a warbird, but we noticed it was strange in certain ways. We had toured Neptunes at air shows and they were still flying then. But this one was just weird. And it had these weird kind of weird structures around the landing gear area and uh, didn't think much of it. And then uh, my article in Air and Space Magazine came out in 2007. And a short time later, a guy called me and read that. And he explained about what our Neptune was. It was a Neptune equipped with snow skis. And they had, uh, Navy had got a number of them modified, not a whole bunch, I think maybe just four or five, to go and explore Antarctica in the 1950s. And so who would know that, like, kind of like uh, my story about, uh, Marge Hurlbert flying the Corsair for a speed record that the Neptune, he would just happen to get one that had been on these epic expeditions to explore Antarctica with uh, snow skis and then Jado bottles to launch out of there. And uh, so this guy who, who'd flown those missions and other Neptunes said, your father's Neptune is the last survivor of all those Neptunes. And uh, David Hall now has most of it. So it's, uh, it's still there. Wow. And uh, 
certainly another plane has a, a good place in history. Wow, that's fantastic. Now, let me ask you, out of all of the aircraft that you guys have recovered, do you have a favorite that, that over all the years, that was the one you, you enjoyed the most? Uh, I'll say up to, <laughs> I, can't, I can't just say it up to, uh, Corsair 00 was my favorite in a sense. It was so complete. Uh, and in fact, uh, I got in trouble with that airplane. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I joke about, we were always, uh, in, in my book, I talk about when we used the boom tractor at the bar with the family car battery, there's one 12 volt battery to the Supplata estate. You know, we, things were tight. So I'm home from college and now I've got a car and, and actually got, I, I put two car batteries in a series and plugged the power cord into zero zero and stuff. Well, what the heck? Let's see if the starter will crank, you know? So I sure enough, I got, you know, electrics came on and you can see the gun sight light up in the cockpit. You know, it was still authentic, just the way it came out of the Navy. Uh, had not been vandalized. You know, a few things stolen, but mostly intact. And so I got those three blades propping and, and turned around and spinning with the car batteries. And uh, uh, the airplane sat a long time. I didn't think to check if there'd be aft gas in it or not. But no, it, no, it didn't fire off. But anyway, <laughs> I'm cranking the Corsair. Uh, and make sure dad's not home. He wouldn't approve of that. And mom chastised me a little bit. And I said, well, I just had to do it. You know, so I did crank the, <laughs> so to speak, crank the Corsair. So, so where's that one now? Where is it still around? Uh, Ken McBride bought that plane. It's on the West Coast. And just, I know through other people, I've been told it's still disassembled in his collection. Whether he'll restore it and, and fly it again is, is, I have no idea. But that's, that's where I've been told it is as, as of this time. So that was one of my favorite airplanes. And then again, the uh, the second B-25, I played in that airplane a lot. Uh, Kevin Huey is restoring it up in New York right at this time. And uh, it, it, uh, again, it was such a pristine airplane that uh, there was talk of uh, the owner, of, you know, would say, I'll ferry it to the airport of your choice, Walter. Uh, it was just needed some fabric in the flight controls, and then it was otherwise good to go. So, uh, I, I played an airplane a lot and love the second B-25. Just good again, such great shape. Uh, so those uh, two of my favorites. And the Bamboo Bobber, the, the, I'm sorry, the Bamboo, the, sorry, the Bobcat, the uh, Cessna T-50 Bobcat. Uh, we hauled, you know, the Sky King's kind of airplane that we hauled that home. And it was also pretty nice inside. So I played in that one a lot. But uh, those would be my favorites, uh, the Bobcat, the Zero Zero Corsair, and the uh, second B-25. Wow. I couldn't imagine. Uh, you had to be a pretty popular kid in school, right? Like coming home with all your uh, buddies and getting to play in some of the airplanes. Like I couldn't imagine a better uh, place to hang out. Yeah, a bunch of kids hang out there. So and this is a good that's a that's a good point. Yeah, definitely a, a big deal with the kids at school. And really a big thing about my father, uh, he never charged admission. And people sometimes by the late 60s, we'd have cars all over the yard, up the street. You know, we'd have a dozen or more cars there you know, families and kids out and open up all the cockpits and, you know, pe people, other people would worry about stuff maybe getting stolen. It didn't matter who you were. If you showed up there that you got to play, your kids could go play in the B-25s. You know, sometimes it'd be a World War II veteran that had not seen a Corsair since they got discharged. You know, they'd be in the cockpit in no time at all. Uh, he was very gracious to let anybody, everybody just crawl around and, and knock yourselves out having fun with his airplanes. And so, you know, what museum will let you do that? You know, just go anywhere you want to go. Uh, and and uh, he really uh, gave him a lot of satisfaction that he was able to do that for, I dare say, you know, countless thousands of people. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Well, I think we're getting ready to wrap up here. Connor, do you have any other questions? 
Uh, not that I can think of. I just, you know, I think everyone, you know, in the, the Warbird world and history world, we, I mean, we all owe just a, a tremendous amount of thanks to your father for his vision, you know, and saving saving just so much history. It's it's kind of mind-blowing how much how much his impact, you know, I think we will continue to see with, with some of those airplanes being restored and all the, you know, all the components you mentioned that have supported other restorations. Yeah, the, the, definitely the uh, the aviation world uh, uh, and the museum world certainly owes uh, a big debt to to your dad, uh, to yourself, and to your family. Because uh, I know a lot of you know uh, uh, it was while you while it was mainly you and your dad out there recovering a lot of the aircraft. Uh, there was support on the home front as well, and uh, uh, you know I think your your mom is kind of an also uh, um, a hero in a way that doesn't uh, get the recognition. So. Um, just thank you so much for everything you've done, and thanks for coming on today and sharing some time with us. Okay, and one last plug. Yeah, my sisters did help quite a bit. One in particular, Barbara, she was, uh, the B-25 required so much disassembly that uh, she was as good as a toolbox with anybody. She knew all her socket sizes and things, and so uh, she was just, uh, others pitched it once in a while, but, but Barbara in particular uh, was really, worked hard on the B-25s with me and dad, so uh, yeah, I don't want to take all the credit that uh, she and others, they really deserve a lot for being supportive in that way and so many other. Well, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. For all of you uh, that listen, thanks for the ongoing support. Uh, make sure you you go on to wherever you find your your uh, your podcast that you like to listen to and download. Leave us a review if you can. Those reviews help a lot. Let everybody know that we're doing good work with the Green Dot. Um, and again, thanks to everybody who works, uh, not just uh, my, my cohorts uh, here that uh, you hear their voices, but also people like Scott who work behind the scenes to make sure that what you hear actually sounds coherent and uh, makes me sound like I know what I'm talking about. So um, again, thank all of you for listening and we'll catch you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot. Mm-hmm.